0: This message is brought to you by Cedar Springs Church. For more information, please visit cedarspringschurchnm.org. It's a revisionist uh, version of American history um, is being taught in our schools. And it, it has, it includes such things that you might be familiar with. Uh, it, it, its presumption is that our country was founded by racists, That our Constitution was drafted with the intent of preserving white supremacy, Um, that there is white privilege that comes with the color of a person's skin. And that if you don't embrace this whole new idea that American culture is racist from its beginning and adopt a woke attitude about it, that you will be canceled. And this is being taught and promoted in our schools. And the question that you have to ask, and I have to ask myself, is how did this happen? Let me back up and say one thing. Yes, there's a sordid history in our country's past. There are things we wish were not there. That's true of every country. And I have absolutely no doubt years from today, we'll look back on today and be ashamed of some of what we're doing today. The key is that we move on and that we grow and we don't stay in those places. That said, how did we get here? How is it that so much of our country has embraced this historically inaccurate version of our past? Because it has been disproven by many much scholarship. Um, I'm going to suggest to you this morning that the reason it has been accepted so readily and so acceptable by so many, to the degree that it's being taught in our schools, is that people absolutely don't know American history. And when someone comes along and tells you their version of American history, you, if you don't know any better, you will absorb it and perhaps believe it. It's the old adage that the best way to recognize a piano in tune is to play a piano in tune, and then when it's out of tune, it's immediately apparent to you. I think I messed that up, but (laughs) you get the idea. The 1619 Project is out of tune, and we should be able to recognize that. There's a principle here. History is important, and we need to get history right. History matters. History is where we find context for where we are at any given moment. It's where we get context. We're about to go to a text in the Bible. One of the things we say about going to a text in the Bible is that a text without context is a pretext. If I take a text and I don't teach it in context, then I'm probably getting ready to use it as a pretext to say whatever I want to say. So let's make sure we understand the importance of context, historical context this morning. I'm going to take you to class this morning. We're going to go to school. The subject of this lesson is not the 1619 Project. The subject of this lesson will be the 2022 Project. So what I'm going to do to you this morning, we're going to do a little history tour, but we're not going to tour world history, we're not going to tour American history, I'm going to tour with you this morning redemptive history. Within, within, there's a, there's a storyline, history begins and history ends, if you believe the, the Bible, it's linear, it has a beginning and an ending, but within a history, world history and all the events that happened in the world, God is acting and there is a redemptive history that, that, that tracks along with uh, with American God deals with mankind through world history, but He deals with mankind specifically in redemptive history, and we're going to look at redemptive history this morning. One of the things I want to tell you before we jump in is that as redemptive history tracks along with world history in linear history, God's redemptive history is cyclical. There are things that happen, and then they happen again. And then in another generation or time, they happen again. And these cycles appear and are repeated over and over and over again, usually increasing each time in intensity. So we're going to find some cycles this morning. We're going to look for some cycles. Now, I'll say something um, uh, right now to Grant and to Bruce and to Kim if he ever hears this. Um, I'm going to do something wrong this morning. When we meet on Thursdays and have our elder meetings, one of the things we do is we we criticize each other's sermons. We critique, excuse me, each other's (laughs) sermons, okay? Some of it is criticism, and and some of it is helpful, and whatever. (laughs) I'm going to do something wrong this morning. I'm going to make an argument, uh, Grant and Bruce, and and I'm going to use our text to teach context. What I'm supposed to do is use context to teach the text. And y'all may not be able to track with that. They will. I'm doing it on purpose. Redemptive history matters. Because past history matters for three reasons. Redemptive history in the past reveals God, number one, reveals God's method to accomplish the redemption of mankind. Past history reveals God's method to accomplish the redemption of mankind. Number two, history matters, our past history matters because it enables us to find our place in the cycle of redemption history. It helps you and I to find our place in the cycle of redemption history. And lastly, history matters, past history matters because it is reliably the best indicator of how future history will unfold. It's the reliably the best indicator of how future history will unfold. Our text this morning is in Exodus chapter 34. I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm not going to go through the whole text. I'm just going to start. get started. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze upon that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning, and he went up on Mount Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand two tablets of stone." Feel that? Feel, feel the tension? You're staring at me. Did, didn't, didn't you feel it? Didn't you, didn't you, didn't that just, no. You know why? I, I know why. Because you don't know the history. You have no context. So let me give you some context so you can feel the words in a proper tone that I, that I just read them to you. We're going to work on that. Our past history reveals God's method to accomplish the redemption of mankind, number one. Let's go back. Um, In 34, this this whole scene we're doing today is, is God and Moses. And let's, let's put a little history on Moses first. I think most of you probably are somewhat familiar with Moses' history. He was an Israelite. He was born at a time when Pharaoh was trying to destroy the Israelite population because he was afraid they were becoming too par- powerful. So he commanded that all the male Israelites born would be uh, killed. And so uh, his mother and his sister Miriam decided to try to save his life by putting him in a little thing and floating him down the river. And as they did this, uh, Pharaoh's daughter happened to come along with her entourage and they scooped Moses out of the water and took him back to the palace. And he ended up getting raised there in that royal palace. Coincidentally, and fortunately, his mother, they needed somebody to nurse this child, and his mother was conscripted to come and to nurse him. So uh, for for some period of time, he lived with his mother there in the royal palace, but he was raised in the royal palace, and he stayed in that royal palace for 40 years. And I presume his mother did not nurse him for 40 years, so I'm presuming that his influences uh, beyond his infancy were those of the royal palace much more than anything else. That's where he went. At the age of 40, he was out on the street one day and he saw an Egyptian uh, abusing uh, an Israelite. And for some reason, Moses still had some identity that he himself was an Israelite. He was offended by one of his countrymen being uh, abused. And so Moses murdered. He killed the uh, Egyptian person there. And that murder, that homicide, was witnessed by another Israelite. And that other Israelite turned Moses in. And so Moses, knowing that he had been turned in, knowing that the death penalty would be extracted upon him, he fled to this place called Midian. By my ruler, it's about 250 miles east as the crow flies. He had crossed the Red Sea twice. He finds himself with the Midianites out in the desert where he lives for 40 years. One thing to know about this that's important to, for us to know about Moses is that as he's living these 40 years uh, in Midian with the Midianites, these two people are descendants of Abraham. Okay, But they're, they're not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are the seed of Abraham, but through a different branch of the family tree. So Moses, as he lived in Midian, he would not have known the, and practiced the things that the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did. Now, the, the people who are were enslaved over there in Egypt, they come from that branch of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they probably have some knowledge of their history. But being 80 years old now and Midianite, when we get to our scene today, Moses is far removed from that culture and knowing much of anything about that history of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Lo and behold, 80-year-old Abraham is out there in the desert one day. He's a sheep herder now. He's gone from royalty to herding sheep. He's out there in the desert by himself, and there's a burning bush. The burning bush comes, and he hears a voice come from the burning bush, and as the the bush speaks to him, it tells Moses that it's God, and the voice of God says to Moses, I have conscripted you. I am volunteering you. You are going to go back to Egypt where you fled, and you are going to save those people who are in bondage there to Pharaoh. Moses immediately does what every, I assume most human, what certainly every member of Cedar Springs Church would do. He gives God five reasons why he's not the right man. (laughs) God has a plan for him and he's going to give God five reasons why he's not the right man. God listens to his five reasons and then tells Moses, pick up your staff and go. Bottom line of that is, Moses doesn't know this God. He's basically 80 years old and has no sense of identity or history in a religious sense. Maybe he has some in an Israelite sense. He knows he's not Egyptian. But he doesn't know this God. He has no idea. As a matter of fact, at one point in his argument with God, he said, God, I can't go back there. If I go back there, who will, who will they? I say send me? I don't know you. I don't know who you are. And God told him, just tell him I am sent you. And I'm sure that made a lot of sense to Moses. I am. I'll just go tell them I am. Well, what we understand from that is, while Moses had no understanding whatsoever of what that meant, I am, probably some Hebrew derivation of Jehovah or some Yahweh, something like that. Uh, he went back. Excuse me. He didn't. If he would go back, what, what God is basically telling him: if you go back and you tell, you may not know who I am is, but if you go back and tell them I am sent you, they will go, oh. Finally, I am has sent someone for us. See, because the Egyptians that were back there in captivity, they were living under the promise of Abraham. And under the promise, when God gave Abraham a promise that he was going to build this nation, this Israelite nation, he he told them at the end of that great promise, he said, but by the way, for 400 years, you're going to go into captivity. That was right there in Genesis 15. He told them that right then. So they've been in captivity now for 430 years. Been waiting for the I am to come back. And now maybe they're going to hear for for a long-lost sense of history for many of them that the I am is back for them. The Abrahamic covenant is about to come back into play. God's going to be faithful to that covenant. All right? What I want us to take out of this is Moses did not know who this voice was from the bush. It was a foreign voice to him. But something about this voice, it was a compelling voice. It compelled him to leave the safety of 40-year safety of Midian and to go back where he would not be safe, where he might still have a wanted poster hanging on him in the post office. But something about this voice put more fear into Moses than the fear of going back to Egypt. What I want us to understand is God is revealing himself to Moses, and the first thing God reveals to Moses Is you better be afraid of me. Fear is Moses' first reaction to this God who's revealed himself to him. Let's fast forward a little bit. Moses takes up his staff as he was commanded, and and he goes back to Egypt, and he confronts Pharaoh. And you're probably familiar with the story of the ten plagues. God imposes ten plagues on Pharaoh and his people and his animals and, and agriculture in such a way to try to convince Pharaoh to let the people go. And Pharaoh stubbornly refuses to submit himself to God. He remains stubborn in his unbelief as he remains stubborn in his unbelief, what does Moses learn about this God that he doesn't know? He learns that this God has power, supernatural power, power far beyond a burning bush that does not consume. He has the power over animals. He has the power over life. He has the power over death. He has the power to impose plagues. He has the power to impose a plague over here, but not over there. This God can do it. And what this God is doing to somebody who remains stubbornly opposed to the God is horrific. It's terrible. This is a God to be feared. These these people's lack of fear, Pharaoh's lack of fear of God is, is coming down at great cost. The wrath of God is being exposed and Moses is realizing this is a God not to be trifled with. This is a God who is compelling when he asks you what to do. And, or tells you what to do. Let's keep going. Not only does God have the power. To impose these plagues. But eventually Pharaoh lets the people go. And as they let the people go. And the people flee. You know the story. Pharaoh changes his mind. And chases them. And God takes. And he drowns the whole army in the Red Sea. We know that story. Right? The Red Sea parts. The Israelites <coughs> go through. and But the. Um, Egyptian army is destroyed. Once again, not only has God shown his power and his anger, he has killed the firstborn sons, and now he has killed an entire army that was stubbornly opposed to God's plan. What does Moses know about this God right now? But that he is one heck of a God to be feared. Nothing else. When the voice of God speaks to you, Don't trifle with it. Now, there's a two-month journey after the parting of the Red Sea. And uh, on this two-month journey, they journey to uh, Mount Sinai. Uh, They called it back then. Uh, It it was known as the Mountain of God, uh, Mount Horeb. We know it today as Mount Sinai. They took them two months to get there. And along the way... The, several things happened uh, they, ran into, they ran out of water and they came to a place and it was bitter water and uh, Moses did what God told him to do and the bitter water was made sweet at another time uh, they were starving to death there's a mil- 1.5 million plus women and children and uh, a lot of people out there not a lot of food there in the desert and they were starving to death and God intervened and he fed them quail and manna another time they ran completely out of water and God by having Moses strike a rock he provided water Another time, they're out there in the middle of the desert, and there's a nomadic force out there, the Amalekites, and the Amalekites see them and see all these people and all this people to be plundered, and they they attack them, and God takes care of the Amalekites. He uses a really, really innovative technique to conquer the the Amalekites. It's not used much today. The way it works is when Moses holds his hands up, they win. When his arms get tired and they come down, they lose. So what eventually has to happen is they have to set Moses down on a rock and they hold his arms up for him so they can win. I don't know if that would work in these days and times with all of the weapons and and things we have, but God once again wanted it to be obvious that it was his power that took out the Malachites. It was none other. So the point of this two-month journey is this God, this God to be feared, not only is a God to be feared, but he provides And if you're in the wilderness, without this God, you die. No water, no food. Enemies attack you. Without God in this desert, on your side, with you, you die. You got it? This is Moses' mind. I'm injecting because I'm a mind reader. And I know what's in his mind. And he knows he needs God. One last piece of context. Exodus 19. Precedes Exodus 20 if you're familiar with Exodus 20. That's where God gives Moses the Ten Commandments and in uh, chapter 19 God gives Moses the instructions Prior to going up and he tell he tells him I don't want any people there. I don't want any animals there I don't want anybody to come up if anybody comes up. It's going to be bad news for him I just want you and you alone to come up on the mountain and I'll come down in a cloud and I'll talk to you there Okay so that's, those are the instructions that, that happen, and um, keep the people down below. So Moses goes up on the mountain, God descends, in a cloud, and God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. But he gives them the Ten Commandments. He doesn't just sit down and dictate to him, he gives it to him in a loud voice. And his voice, this cloud, and, and the voice, it is so loud that the people way down at the bottom of, uh, of the mountain are hearing this voice, and they're shuddering at the voice that they hear. So what they what they end up doing, they are this voice scares the bejesus out of them. Can you hear, what kind of a voice would it take for that to happen to you? He's on Sandia Mountain, you're down here, and it's booming in your ears. Something supernatural is going on there. And the people after the Ten Commandments tell Moses, yeah, you know, because Moses comes down and starts. Telling them what's on the tent and he's going back up. And so the people tell him, we're out of here. You go back up. We want nothing to do with this. You just go up. You figure out what he says and then you come tell us, but we're leaving. There was something about the voice of God so powerful that, and, that, it, did, that it injected nothing into these people but fear. So We leave. That scene, Moses goes back up, he's back up there for 40 days, 40 nights. People get impatient. I think you know the story. What happens next? They people convince Aaron to make a golden calf, and they have they dance around a golden calf, they create an idol. God knows that's happening. He tells Moses, you better go down there and check it out and see what's going on. So Moses goes down there and you know the story. He takes the Ten Commandments, he throws them on the ground, and they have become, in a moment of time, they have become enemies of God. Now we know at this point, Moses doesn't know a whole lot about God, but what he does know about God is you better be on his side. And if you're not on his side, there, he's not to be trifled with, you're in big trouble. So Moses knows what's happened. What is God going to do to us now? Look what he did to Pharaoh. Look what he did to the Amalekites. Look what he did in the plagues and the firstborn sons. Now it's us. Now it's us. We are subject to his wrath. And we know nothing but fear about this God. God comes down. He talks to Moses. God is indeed very angry. He tells Moses, you will take the sons of of Levi, and I want you to go kill the ringleaders that started this thing, this golden calf thing. And so 3,000 people are killed that day. That's what happens when God is turned against. His wrath comes down on you. So now we're getting real close to Exodus 34. Because most of this that I just said described you happened in Exodus 33. So our context right now, what, what has just happened immediately prior to what I just read you, is the Israelite people are in no man's land. They're wondering, we know we are in the wilderness. We know that there's an enemy out here. That if God is not with us, we're doomed. That we need God's provision. And not only that, how is God going to punish our sin? Look how he punished Pharaoh's sin, the Amalekite's sin, those others who came against him. They're thinking, and God, God has told them, I no longer, you, no, I, you no longer have my favor. And Moses tries to strike a deal with God, and he tells him, look, take me, punish me, and let them go. They need you. We can't go on without you. We need you with us. All right? So, leading up to chapter thirty-four, verse one, we are sitting on the edge of our seat. Tension—the tension is phenomenal. Nobody knows what's going to happen, but it's us. You got tension now? Got a little? Bit? You getting to getting the tension? All right. Let me illustrate tension a little bit. This is this is like when Mighty Mouse is tied to the tracks, and and Minnie Mouse is in trouble and he can't go save her and the train is coming and, and what's going to happen because he's t- that's tension <laughs> same thing Alfred Hitchcock there's, a, there's some birds and there's more birds and, and there's more and more birds a- and the tension is building and you locked yourself in the house and the birds are pecking at the windows and they're coming in and they're coming down the chimney and, and there's no possible way you can battle tension Wizard of Oz the flying monkeys. <laughs> tension. They've got Judy Garland. What's going to happen to Judy? Dirty Harry, make my day. <laughs> Do you feel lucky? Think of the tension that guy's in. right? Tension. I want us to feel. These guys know that, some, that this thing could go thumbs up or, or down. The jury's still out. What's going to happen to them? What? How is God going to deal with this? The only thing we know about this God, He's, he's a God of wrath. He's an angry God. Exodus thirty-four one to seven, the Lord said to Moses, "Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke." Be ready by morning. Come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze upon that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first and he rose early in the morning and he went up on the mountain. What do we have here? We have an absolute reboot. God is going to give them a break. He's going to give them a reprieve. Moses, let's go back. Let's go back to 19. Same instructions as 19. You come up on the mountain. We'll take two tablets and we'll start this thing all over again. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God of mercy. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving the iniquity and transgression of sin. But who will also, by no means, clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the children's children. Let's parse that just a little bit. I am a God merciful and gracious, we didn't know that. We didn't know that was in your quiver. We didn't know that was in your repertoire. We didn't, we didn't expect or have any knowledge at all that that was your character, that you were great, merciful and gracious, slow to anger. All we've seen is quick to anger. God is revealing something to that I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. What you need to realize here is this, this steadfast love. Steadfast, is a, steadfast love is used over and over and over. It's one of the most frequently used words in the Old Testament other than the. Okay. It's interpreted several ways. It was in Bruce's text this morning. It was in one of the songs we sang this morning. Steadfast love in this context is often translated covenant love. The reason God conscripted Moses to begin with at the burning bush was because he made a covenant with Abraham that he intended to keep. God keeps his covenants. He told him it would be a delay 430 years, but God keeps his covenants. What, Mo, what God is telling Moses here, that his steadfast love, and, and he is, has a steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love, he's saying, Moses, I have a steadfast covenant love for you. I made a covenant with you on Mount Sinai that first time. And it didn't away. And one of the things that's common very, it's common with all God's covenants, but it's, it's common in, in the covenant with Abraham and in the covenant with Moses. In both cases, God made a covenant with sinful people. All the people are sinful. There wasn't anybody else to make a covenant with. But these people were particularly sinful. Adam, Isaac, and Jacob, in the course of receiving, after the course of receiving the first covenant, they became unfaithful. They sold their brother Joseph into slavery. Right? They needed to be off for 400 years or so to think about it. And God knew that was coming, and he planned for it. God is telling Moses here, I will keep my covenant with you. I have a steadfast love for you, and I am faithful. I will be faithful to that covenant. I will have a steadfast love for thousands. There's thousands of you, and I will keep that. Okay, But, don't misunderstand me because I am by no means a God who will clear the guilty. I will visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. So don't go around thinking that I'm only a God of love, because I'm a God of love for mine, for those I have chosen. But for those who who are against me, the pharaohs of the world, the Amalekites of the world, for them, I will not clear their guilt. I will visit their, their iniquity on the fathers of the children, on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. God is revealing himself to Moses. To, he's revealed him in, that he's, he's a God to be feared. He's a God to be respected and revered. But at the same time, he, for his people, he, ha, he has forgiveness. He has grace. He has a steadfast love. This is the God that they serve, that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob serve. Moses, as an 80-year-old Midianite, is now learning who this God is. It's not the God that he thought it was in the initial stages of his uh, interaction with God. This God hates sin and unbelief and he will seek it out and he will destroy it. This God is merciful and gracious and steadfast in his love and commitment to his chosen. Those two bottom lines. Remember now, we're talking about history, and history matters. Redemptive history, is, is, it has a beginning and an end, but it's cyclical. There's a cycle. There's, it repeats itself in intensity. It's kind of, to me, it's like every day for God, dealing with mankind, is Groundhog Day. It's here we go again. And the, and the drill is always the same. He lays down the rules. The people rebel against the rules. He takes retribution on the people and eventually he redeems and restores the people. That's the cycle. That's God's method. That's what we learn from redemptive history. How God deals with mankind in these cycles of rebellion, restoration, retribution, where we, we get put in a timeout for a while, and then he comes back and he redeems and he restores. That's, what we, that's the first thing we learn from knowing redemptive history. But there's a second thing. Redemptive history matters because it enables us to properly find our place in the cycle. As the cycles are going on, where are we in the cycle? I think there's some clues here. Uh, let's do this. Uh, I'm going to do a little reality check with you. Just you know, This is personal. and Just check the boxes in your own mind. Uh, the stock market is crashing, right? If you have anything in the stock market right now, you just lost 20% of it. Uh, all predictions that i've read are that before this ends you're going to learn you're going to lose 33% of what you got in there. Does that bother you? Maybe you don't have any money in the stock market. Maybe you're glad you don't. You just spend it as fast as you you get it. Okay. Um, <laughs> stock market, okay. Uh, how, how about this? Um, how about uh, a politics driven inflation? Does that bothering you? How about critical race theory? Does that bother you? Is it causing you any anxiety to be thought of as a white supremacist? Is it bothering you that your kids are in public school and the 1619 Project is teaching them all kinds of nonsense about their history? How about gender, gender identity? Now, I might be wrong about this, okay? But, but I'm, I'm understanding that trending in the most popular baby names this year is the name They. could be wrong. Um, What exactly are your prayers and your concerns? What's on your radar? Uh, What has you in a tizzy? What would resolve it? My guess is, if we're honest with each other, and we admit which of these items or other items have us going, that they tend to be more that our politics is under attack than our faith is under attack. If our politics is under attack more than my faith is under attack, where am I in the cycle? There is a cycle, we're individuals, we're in different places with God and who we understand Him to be and our relationships with Him are in different places. Some of us are doing great with God, some of us are just learning about God, some of us haven't got any of it figured out yet. One thing we all have in common right now is that we are idol makers and that each of us in this room have idols. John Calvin says, I think I heard somebody say it last week, uh, that we are an idol factory. Okay. Let the person in this room who says he does not have an idol, I would take you to John. When John was a very old, the apostle John was a very old man. He's the apostle that Jesus loved, right? And so all the other apostles we think had martyrs' deaths and not John. John lived to a very ripe old age. Matter of fact, what history tells us is he was so old that his church had to put him in a chair or something and carry him up to the pulpit to preach and then carry him back down. He became so old and feeble, but they loved him, and they cherished him. And you think of a guy with his life experience and all of the track record that he had when he spoke people would listen. And one of the things we read that John said in 1 John is let him who says hey he who has he who says he has no sin is a liar. You sit there and you tell me you don't have idols in your life, you're a liar. You don't get it. We have made politics in our life an idol. We make our families idols. Our job is an idol. My identity is my idol. Most of us have so many idols, we can't even keep track of them. All right? So in the cycle of the things, the first thing to remember is, in Moses' day, the golden calf brought them to a place in the cycle where they were desperate to know if God would still have them, they knew they were lost. They were doomed without His presence in the wilderness. They knew they lived in abject fear that He would abandon them. That's where we are in the cycle, idol maker brethren. We are at a place: Is God with us, or is God against us? Are we with Him, or are we against Him? Where in this cycle of life do we find ourselves? And where we find ourselves is where most humanity finds itself. We are in the cycle of the wilderness. We need God here. We don't have Amalekites, we have inflation. We have Project 1619. We have gender issues that are ridiculous. We have abortion up to the moment of birth. Okay? We are living in a wilderness, and heaven help us if we're here without God. Heaven help us if we're not on His side, if we join ranks with the enemy. Our problems are not inflation. Our problems are not gender. Our problems are not political. Our problems are our relationship with God in this time in this wilderness that we live in. For 430 years, he let the Israelites stew in Pharaoh's Egypt. For 70 years after a rebellion rebellious strife he let them he let uh, the Israelites he, he destroyed their cities they went off to, in, to exile and he let them stew they came back and they didn't do a whole lot better than they did when they were sent away the first time so what did he do he once again he went silent for 400 years and after another 400 years of silence he broke his silence And he sent someone else to save us. This time it wasn't Moses. It was somebody much better than Moses. He sent Jesus Christ to us. To assure us. That I am with you. And I will be with you always. I know you're in the wilderness. I know life is rough. I know life is not fair. But this is not. Don't pray for justice. Pray for mercy. Because I'm here with mercy and grace. It's not time yet. For justice. Our fear. Our problem, put it this way, is that we are still full of fear, but we are full of fear of the wrong thing. Our tension is political, it's cultural, and it should be, what is my relationship with God? He who promises to be with me, who has steadfast love with me, and will see me through. He made a covenant with Moses, he made a covenant with Abraham. The covenant with Moses has been fulfilled, the covenant with Abraham still stands will I be in that family that he's promised Abraham here's the thing I'm encouraging us uh, to, to know this morning that if we have tension and we have tension about the wrong things then we're we're struggling with idols and if you're not on God's side then you're against him he who is not for me is against me right if, if we are against God, if you are, are, are struggling with the wrong things here this morning, here today, and those are your fears, and those are your idols, and those are your tensions, what has God said? I believe he said, by no means will I clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. If, you're str- if you're, your idols, if you refuse to let go of your idols and you don't belong to Him, I'll, I'll, I'll do this a little bit better in a few minutes, then you're guilty. And He's going to visit that iniquity on you. And you know what else? If you're living day to day in politics and, and this and that, and these are the things that are, are going in your life and in your house, you're teaching your kids. You are going to visit this on them generation after generation. You're teaching them how to live in the wilderness. And it's to live as if you can fix the wilderness, so the wilderness will be fixed. Uh uh-uh. uh. That's not where we are in the cycle. We are idle factories. We are in the wilderness, and there's only one thing we need, and that's Jesus Christ. There was only one thing the Israelites needed, and that was what God provided them through Moses, and now it's what God has provided us through Jesus Christ. There is no political solution our circumstance. Quit worrying about it. I'm not saying you're not salt of the earth. I'm not saying that we aren't supposed to be lights in the darkness. We're to do do and to be all those things, but those aren't the real issue. The real issue is whose team are you on? If you are a believer, if you believe that you and Jesus Christ are one, your tension is is resolved. You know where this goes at the end, end of the day. He's a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, bounding in steadfast love, faithfulness. He's keeping steadfast love for thousands, and that's you, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. He knows you got idols, but he's chosen you. When Moses realized that, when Moses realized, and all the tension, everything he had, and what's going to happen to us? When God came in and said, we're going to do this again, Moses. I'm giving you a reboot. We're going to go hit this one more time. Go back to Exodus 34 one more time. And after God just told him who he was and revealed him his grace and his mercy, verse 8, Moses quickly bowed his head towards the earth and he worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst with us. For it's a stiff-necked people and a pardon for our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. He He knelt down, he worshiped, he admitted his his sinfulness, and he said, "Please be with me. Go with me." There's a lesson there in this cycle that's repeated to us. That's, those are the same instructions to us. Now, on the other hand, maybe you're young and you haven't haven't figured out what this is all about, and you don't believe yet. Or maybe you're old and you haven't figured it out yet, well, but this, and you still remain in one shape or another in some state of unbelief. Uh, In the past, how has God, in redemptive history, dealt with unbelief? How did it go for Moses, excuse me, for Pharaoh? How did it go for the Amalekites? How did it go for the 3,000 ringleaders of the golden calf? If you remain in in unbelief, number one, you're going to pass that on Generation to generation to generation, it says. And it's time to break the pattern because he will by no means clear the guilty and your sin may be passed on to your future generations. If you have not dealt with this, if you do not deal with this, you, my friend, are a sinner in the hands of an angry God. And that's not a good place to be. Moses pled, found himself in, fit back in favor with God. May you too plead with God that you may find yourself in favor with him. 430 years, God remained silent. 70 years in exile, God remained silent. 400 years, God remained silent. You and I are in the wilderness. He has not abandoned us. He has left, but he's coming back.